few weeks ago or maybe a month ago, Brad asked if I would speak on the theme of assurance and and is it, it is a theme that is deeply biblical, but also one that is deeply personal. It, for most of my upbringing, I struggled with assurance. All through college, even, and even through part of seminary. I could not grasp the reality that God indeed would redeem me. And I know I'm not the only one. In fact, assurance has been wrestled with by Christians of all ages, going all the way back even to the garden. What was it that the accuser tempted Eve to doubt? Our book of Hebrews this morning draws our attention heavily upon the Old Testament, particularly Abraham. In this whole context of assurance. And it's wonderful to think that there are particular books of the Bible that were written for the sole purpose that we might have assurance. John writes his gospel that we might know that Jesus is the son of the living God. And John writes his first epistle that we might know that we know that Jesus is the son of God. So assurance stands at the very heart of the word. But there are many causes for doubting, for struggling assurance. You have, again, the accuser. It's even made an appearance, I think, two or three of the songs that we even sang this morning when the accuser reminds us of the guilt within or the sin that we've committed or our past. There is something there that is intentionally trying to rob the Christian of that enjoyment of the assurance or certainty that they belong to God. There are weaknesses of our faith. We know that in this life, faith grows and it's stretched and it's strengthened, but yet there are times that it is weak and it will often doubt. But there's also the circumstances and challenges of life. And that's even what we have that is behind the book of Hebrews, right? You have, you have Christians here who who embraced Christ, but then all manner of persecution comes. And as the persecution becomes relentless, there's there's that thought that, in a sense, it, is this worth it? Do we continue pressing on or do we go back? And so the book of Hebrews itself is that it's that message of consolation to encourage God's people. No, keep pressing on because Jesus is supreme. Jesus is all glorious and Jesus is the great prophet, the great king and the great high priest who will secure you and has secured you until the day of redemption. But not only challenges but also disappointments, discouragements in life can cause us and rob us to doubt. And then sometimes for those there, it's just the disposition. There, there are some believers who have a disposition where rejoicing and resting in the assurance is always going to be difficult. And then there are those who have tender consciences when the conscience rises up within and it 
it brings to mind all that you've ever done. But we are told again, right, that greater is God than even your conscience. And so whatever the cause of doubt may be, whatever the robbing of assurance may be, there is something specifically in the word of God that we can appeal to, we can answer those doubts with. And the writer of Hebrews here in chapter 6 gets to the very heart of assurance. So I want to just consider two broad themes with you this morning. The ground of our assurance and then the certainty of our assurance. The first thing I want you to see is that the ground of assurance is located in the God who cannot lie. It's so easy to find or to want to find assurance in self. If you were to go back to the medieval period, the world in which Martin Luther grew up in, the predominant thought that he was raised in was that, yes, for sure, God is a God of grace. But God's grace enables those who strive and work to be right with him. So if you are desiring to be right with God, you give all of your effort, all of your attention, all of your focus to to do whatever it is that you believe is necessary to be right with God. And God sees that intensity and he, in his grace, comes along and propels you on. But as Martin Luther found in his own experience and in his own life, that how could he ever be certain that he exerted enough intensity, he exerted enough desire to which then God's grace would come. So, so ultimately he was in a, in a theological framework that any kind of certainty was located in self, located in desire. And I would say that for different reasons, that is one of the main causes for lacking assurance, even in the modern Christian world. That was what was behind my struggles. Did I, did I pray the right way? Did I confess everything that needed to be confessed? Was my faith sincere enough? And those were the questions that plagued. And then you know that there is to be growth, right, in the Christian life and You'd wrestle with the same sins. Okay, if I'm having to confess the same sins over and over again, there must not be any any seed of genuine faith there. And so you go back and you do the whole thing over again. Night after night after night. But what the writer here wants us to see is at the very basis, the ground of any assurance is not located in us. It is located in God. And notice the argument here. He's going to take us all the way back to Abraham. And he's going to take us actually first back to Genesis 22. This is, this is kind of, this is old man Abraham who is enjoying 
his life. Right? Genesis 21 ends with, with this vision of, of Abraham sitting down outside the tent and you almost get to like watching Isaac play. He's gone through all the years of waiting. He's gone through all of the years of of the temptations and and maybe the missteps and then the acts of faith and and the whole Hagar Ishmael thing and now there's peace. And Genesis 22 begins with and the Lord tested Abraham by saying take and and don't miss the lady take your son, your only son, the son that you love. And now go sacrifice him. And you know the story. Abraham and Isaac go up Mount Moriah. They leave the servants, right? They leave the servants there. And you have to wonder what's going on in Abraham's mind as he's rehearsing all of the decades prior Going back to Genesis 12, right, when God calls him out of Ur, and then Genesis 15, when you have the establishing of the covenant, and, and there, right, he, God cuts the covenant, and, and God says, right, God says, this is what I will do. And if I don't do it, just as it is with this animal, so will it be with me. And then Genesis 17, this, this, covenant sign that that visible assurance of God's pledge and God's word and now Genesis and what is going through his mind and he gets up there right and he lays Isaac on the altar and his hands go up with the knife and then the angel of the Lord comes and then God says this, Abraham, I will bless you. I will multiply you. And then he says, I swear it to you. I swear to you that everything that I have promised you will come to pass. And so why, why did God swear? I guess we could ask, why do we swear? Why We take oaths and we swear because we sometimes lie. And we don't keep our word all the time. Right? I can tell my children, remember when they, when they were younger, that we want to go someplace and so we, we would get tickets for something and then they, you know, there's a hard grasp of time Right when you're really young, and so like, are we ever gonna go? Are we going? Are we? Yes, I prom- like I promise you, we're going. Are you sure? Yeah, I swear to you, we're gonna go. Is it, are, are you? Look at the tickets. All right, they're right there. But they know and see, like, because sometimes things happen, and sometimes mom and dad make plans that they don't deliver. So we, so we swear to try to add to the truthfulness and trustworthiness. But God can't lie. So you have to ask, and this is what the writer wants to see. Why then did God make an oath? Not for his own sake, but for Abraham's. To show to Abraham, look, I've promised you a lot. And I know that you've had to do a lot of waiting. And I know that there's going to be more waiting still. 
I swear to you, I will keep my word. He does that for Abraham's certainty. He does that for Abraham's assurance. And then he goes on, right? And he says, for people swear by something greater than themselves. And then all their disputes and oath is final confirmation. So when God desires to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guarantees it with an oath. And this is what's amazing. You always swear by something greater than yourself. You know, I remember in elementary school on the, the playground, you know, you know, I, I swear on my mother, or I swear on this, you know, and, and it's like, if I don't come through, then something bad's going to happen to my mother, right? And here's God who says, I swear by my name. I swear in such a way that if these things don't come true, he's, I will cease to exist. That is the measure and the weight. But we know that God cannot lie. We know that God always is. And so when he says, I would rather cease to exist than break my word. He's not doing that for his own sake, but for yours. And notice again, it says to the heirs of promise that this oath that he swore to Abraham in Genesis 22 was not just for Abraham. It was for you. If you are a child of Abraham and we are children of Abraham by faith in Christ, then you are an heir of the promise. So the promise in its certainty to Abraham, which was sworn by God, by his name, is the same promise sworn to you that will be certain. And what is the essence of that promise? That there is going to be a seed. And this seed is going to come for you. And this seed is going to be for you what that animal was for Isaac on Mount Moriah. I have provided for you. A sacrifice. I have provided for you something that will, will remedy this problem of sin, this, this hostility that we have, that there will be a remedy provided by God as the seed of Abraham to redeem you and fully reconcile you to God. So then he goes on and says, by these two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie. What are those two unchangeable things? One is the promise itself. If God makes a promise, its, its certainty is sure, just by virtue of the promise, because he cannot lie. But he adds to the promise the oath. And so we now have two grounds of certainty located in God and his word that are outside of us. And here's the hope and comfort of this. When all of those doubts come to the mind, 
when all of those accusations from the accuser come, when all of those threats from the accuser, when all of those difficult providences that sometimes cause us to reflect and say, if God really loved me, then this would not have happened. We can say, look, I, whatever it is the accuser says, he doesn't have the final word. Whatever it is these providence are, I know that God says that he will work it all for good and he will take this and turn it for my good. I can rest upon the word of God and it is sure and steadfast. And I think even if we, we follow that promise to Abraham on through, through the Old Testament, we see the certainty and the surety of God's word. You look at Israel's history. And all of the folly that you see there. And yet God preserved his word. I think even when we just go to the last of the Old Testament books and you see Malachi there. And here God has kept his word from before the exile that I will bring you back to the land. And they come back to the land and he's kept his word. And through Haggai and Zechariah, they, they build the temple wall or the temple and the, and the city walls and he's kept his word. But what's interesting there is, is Israel in Malachi's day, they doubted everything. They were cynical. And you remember the very first thing they doubted? They said, God does not love us. And God says, I have loved you. Look how I have loved you. See how I have watched over you. See how I have guided you. I have loved you. And then you see then that promise through Malachi of a forerunner. And 400 years go by. It's about a page and a half for us from Old Testament, New Testament. For them, it's 450 years. And you have to wonder, generation after generation, like, they're like, has God forgotten this? We're like, there's not even a prophet. It's, it's silence. Has God kept his word? And then we flip over and we see the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And we walk through and from generation to generation, you have God is watching the line. He's watching his people. And in the right time, here is Jesus Christ, that true seed of Abraham. And the writer here is telling us, look, God can keep his word. But then he takes us secondly to another argument here. And that is the certainty of our assurance is bound up in the Christ who cannot fail. And I think this is some of the most beautiful imagery in all of scripture on the security of the saints. So we have these two unchangeable things, which is impossible for God to lie. We fled for refuge to him, holding fast to the hope. Then he says this, we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. One that has gone behind the veil. And now we're taken, we're taken to the tabernacle, right? The image here, the tabernacle. So we move on from Abraham and now we come to the tabernacle. And you remember you've got the outer area. Then you have the holy place. And then there's the veil and then the most holy place, the holy of holies. And and this is packed with all of that 
tabernacle theology here and 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 they would have known the significance of that right that they would have known that one day a year and only one the high priest takes off those royal priestly garments and in in that humble undergarment of the priestly robe he puts his hand on the first goat that transfer that picture of the transfer of the sins of the people on a a provided animal and that animal is then sacrificed and and that high priest takes that blood and he goes that one day a year behind the veil no one else can see him all of israel outside the tabernacle they, they can't see what's going on in there and he sprinkles that blood on the mercy seat and then he comes out and there's that second animal that he puts his hand on the head and again picturing that transfer and that animal is sent outside to camp so so we have we have that picture of satisfaction we have that picture then of the removal of sin and now all of that is bound up in Jesus Christ and the writer of Hebrews tells us Christ is the mercy seat he's the mercy seat but he's also the sacrifice but he's also the great high priest and here's what he's done he has taken the anchor of your hope and he is gone in that true holy of holies and he's taken that anchor as it were and he's fixed it fast into the holy of holies not made with hands now i'm not a sailor nor am i the son of a sailor But there's a few basic things about an anchor that I'm aware of. As long as the anchor remains in the boat, it's of little use. So if we try to take the anchor of our hope or our assurance and find it in us, we're going to be discouraged. We're going to be frustrated. We're going to have all of those questions. Have I done enough? Have I believed enough? Have I hoped enough? Have I confessed enough? We're going to look at our perceived sanctification. I don't know if I'm growing in that. Like if if we hold on to that anchor and, and it's fixed on us, we're all over the waters of life. But I also know that an anchor needs to be attached at both ends. If you throw the anchor over the boat and you're kind of holding onto that rope as it goes down and that rope leaves your hand, you think, oh boy, I forgot to tie it to the boat. That anchor is not going to do any good. And here's the glory of God's grace and redemption. The end of the rope of the anchor that's attached to us is fixed, 
not by the measure or sincerity of our own faith, but by the Holy Spirit who grants that faith to us and unites us to Jesus Christ. So the the bitter end, on, on the bit, on our end, it's tied there by God. And then I also know that an anchor that is solidly attached to the bottom will hold the boat through many storms. Through many doubts. Growing up, my grandparents had a cabin on the on the Sault Ste. Marie in the Upper Peninsula and we would fish. And my grandfather let the three grandchildren take turns throwing out the anchor. And and you're waiting for it to grab something at the bottom, and then you feel like the tug of the rope. Like you, you can you can feel when it becomes fixed. And here in this imagery, what we have is the work of God's grace tying the one end to us. And then Christ himself ascending, as it were, into heaven and taking that anchor and fixing it. But what is it that entered behind the veil? This is where you have this image like, what, what is the anchor? The anchor's Christ. And he is firmly fixed. And he's sure and he's steadfast. That word steadfast, there's a firmness there. And he's gone into that holy of holies. What, and what is that? That all the imagery of the tabernacle and then the truth, it's the very presence of God. So Christ has taken you and the certainty of your redemption into the very presence of God. And he's there as your forerunner, the, the guarantee that you too will be there. But the remarkable reality is that spiritually, that's where you are. You're, you are already behind the veil because Christ, as the mediator and, and the head of his body, he cannot be apart from his body. And his body cannot be apart from him. And Paul is going to develop this in Ephesians chapter 2, right? And in that first chapter, you see that great power of God that raises Christ up and seats him in heavenly places. But then in chapter 2, you whom he has quickened, he has raised you and seated you in the heavenly places. So we can say, where where are you? You're here for sure, but you're also there for sure. And he will hold you and you say, what is the success? What's the guarantee? What's the hope of that? It is, it is the work of Jesus Christ. So you, you have a movement here in Hebrews. You, you have Christ. Remember in chapter one, the, the express image of the Father's radiance, the glory of the Father. He, he is, he is God. And so he starts from above. 
and he comes down to earth. And he did not come down to earth for his own sake, but for our sakes. And so if he comes down for our sakes, Hebrews 1 and chapter 2, then he goes up again, not for his own sake, but for our sakes. And so he takes us with him. And we're there. And he's there as the successful mediator, the one who has paid for all of our sins. So we now look at Christ down here as the substitute, the one who lived a perfect life. And you understand when we we sing all of these songs this morning about that righteousness of Christ and and that obedience of Christ and, and all of these wonderful things. Well, he he perfectly kept the law because we failed to. And he paid all of the demands of the law because we couldn't. And so that righteousness that he earns is imputed to us, declared to be ours. And so that is the righteous standing in which you have. But as the sin bearer, he takes all of your transgressions, right? All of those sins that nobody else in here knows about. The sins that you remember at night when you lie down and you think, could I really be saved? Even even those sins, he takes all of them on his body on the tree and the full fury of God's wrath is poured out upon him at Calvary. And, and in the most ironic of all events, there is the light of the world is hanging on the cross, all goes dark. And Coming out from that darkness is the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because he's standing in our place, taking our sin. And then you now have the light back on. And he says, it is finished. There's no more to be done to procure your salvation than has been done at Calvary. And we know that it was accepted because on that third day, he was raised from the dead, that divine amen of the sacrifice. And so he he will have all that he came for and nothing will be lost. That was the wonder of even our response of reading this morning from John 17, where Christ even then is praying for you. Father, all those that you have given me, may they be with me. May they come to me. And that's being answered over time as the Holy Spirit works that regenerating work in the life of sinners, bringing them into union with Christ. And you see that prayer has been answered in that person. That prayer has been answered there. And it's been answered in you if you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ. And if that's been answered for you, it can it cannot be unanswered. It can't be lost. Those that God has adopted will not be unadopted. You are his forever. And that is the certainty of Christ. I remember at a very low point in the struggles with assurance, I came across a book called What is Faith by J. Gresham Machen. And at the very end, he recounts a story of the second part of Pilgrim's Progress, Christiana's story 
of, of a particular character who struggled with deep doubts and, and was convinced that they would never be able to cross over the river and get to the celestial city. But as I think it was Mr. Greatheart was recounting this story, says in all of his life, he had never seen the river as low as it was on the day that faint heart went across. And so God even takes the soul, the Christian who struggles and brings them on. And then Machen goes on and he says this. He goes, no, there is a lot that weak faith will not do. There's a lot that weak faith cannot do. But there's one thing it can do. It can bring a sinner into peace with God. It's because it's not, and I grew up hearing this from my dad, it's not the measure of your faith that saves, it's the object. And so if your faith is in the object of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have a sure and steady anchor. And then we close with one marvelous imagery here of verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. That's a guarantee that we will be with him. Now, in in our use of anchors, maybe we drop anchor, we fish a little bit, then it's time to go. And what do we do? We pull the anchor up, put it back in the boat. But here, it's opposite. The anchor's fixed. When it's time to move, as it were, Christ is pulling the rope of the ship to him. And he's bringing us to where the anchor is. And he will never lose a one for which he came.